This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Trevor. Graciously, Paul. Paul, you're being so gracious today, joining me. (laughs) It's all on my end. Very easy to do. Love it as always. Yeah. Plus, it's the season for graciousness, right? That's right. That's right. It's been a. It's it's been one of those. uh, one of those years and now we get to look back and see how it's been in our reading life a little bit i know it's hard to believe it's already that time i know we probably say that every year in various mm-hmm. you know forms but the years definitely rushed by it's been a really good reading year <laughs> it's gonna be fun i've enjoyed kind of looking back on it a little bit over the last week or two that's one of my favorite parts about it is regardless of what books we choose <laughs> yeah it's just the fun of looking back and reflecting and remembering and kind of solidifying some reading memories. Um, One thing that you kind of talked about on an episode a little bit ago was sometimes waiting for those perfect reading days or moments. They don't just happen naturally. You have to sit down and create them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I reflect back on the year, that's how these things have become, even though maybe I didn't notice it right at the moment. Yeah. It, you know, I was stealing five minutes at lunch here. I was, you know, uh, dealing with uh, noisy kids there while I was reading something. But now looking back on it, it's kind of me and the book. And, it, yeah. you know, these are delightful memories. I know. I noticed that too. And another thing that I noticed is some of the books, when I'm looking back on my list of things I read this year, it seems like I read them just yesterday. And then there are other ones where I'm like, wow, I read that this year. Like it almost seems like it was two or three years ago and, and not in a bad way, but it's just interesting how your perceptions of time and, and when things took place, you know, books that I, you know, read more recently seem like I read them a long time ago or ones that I read back in January seems like I just read them. It's, it's very interesting how all that works. Yeah. I think I had the same experience where it's just, it, it doesn't seem possible. Some of them I'm like, oh, oh Yeah. I I forgot about that book. (laughs) I know. I had that too. I don't know if that's a bad sign or whatever, but yeah, there's a few where it's like, wow, that apparently did not make much of an impression or at least not a lasting one. But in some ways, that's not a bad thing either because it makes you kind of appreciate Mm -hmm. the ones that do stick around, you know? So yeah, it's fun. So we are here for one of my favorite traditions of any form. I've done these for a long time with like the Criterion cast where we Mm. just look back and say, What were your favorite releases of the year? But we aren't talking just about 2022 books. Um, Just like last year, we're going to be doing our top 10 favorite reads of the year. And we could have read, you know, any book for the first time this year, or even, I guess, we've never said no rereads. Just what were your favorite? You sat down, you read this book, and it, it was one of your favorite reads of the year. Whatever that means to you. And today's episode is part one. It's going to be our picks 10 through 6. And then uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our part two, where we round it up and get our five through one. And I'm, you know, we've been talking all year. I know kind of in general books you've read and books you've enjoyed, but I'm excited to see what you've picked. (laughs) No. I am too. I'll be curious to see. I felt like last year there were some books that snuck onto your list that maybe you had mentioned in passing during the year, but I feel like there was at least a few where I was like, oh, geez, I hadn't even heard about that one. And I don't know <laughs> if that'll happen this year or not. It's kind of fun to see how that know. all plays out. I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see. And I suspect year, you've heard about most of them Yeah, from, from me. Like we've you've heard me talk about them. Right. 
Well, this year we've had like the full, full year of recording. Last year we had started mm-hmm. a little later and, and caught up. And so I do think since we've been having conversations throughout the year, there's a better chance that I've probably at least mentioned some of mine in passing as well. Um, and another thing I'm curious about last year, we somehow managed to avoid having any duplicates on our two lists. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll happen this year. Might. It but... it might. Though I'll maybe spill the beans. Some of the ones that are going to be on my list are ones mm-hmm. that you have recommended to me because you've oh. liked them so much. Well, that makes me happy. So, <laughs> not, I'm sad to say, not yet, Lonesome Dove. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've been reading Magic Mountain, you know, back to back to back like three or four times. Right. So that's probably why. <laughs> But we thought we'd start out today's episode with an email that we just got from Karen O. She says, Hi, Paul and Trevor. I love hearing people's year-end best-of lists, and I thought I'd share just one of my favorite books of 2022 with you. I started the year joining a Year of Reading Russians group led on Goodreads by the late, great Jenny Colvin of the Reading Envy podcast. Things went rolling merrily along until Russia invaded Ukraine, and some of the group members were starting to feel uncomfortable focusing on Russia. I decided to try reading some contemporary Ukrainian authors, and I landed on The Orphanage by Sergei Zhadan. Uh, Sorry, I'm sure I'm not saying that quite right. It turned out to be one of my favorites of the year. The novel is set in an earlier but recent period of conflict between Ukraine and the Russians invading from the east, although the author keeps things vague as to who's who most of the time. Soldiers are all soldiers, specifics left unsaid. It features a hapless teacher determined to remain uninvolved. I just don't follow politics, he keeps saying who spends a few days crossing the dangerous landscape to retrieve his nephew from the group home where his mother deposited him. The story is harrowing and distressing, but with lots of bleak humor. I loved the writing, and the translation by Riley Costigan and Humes and Isaac Stackhouse Wheeler is excellent. And as a bonus, I discovered that the book is part of a series from Yale University Press called The Margellos World Republic of Letters, which I didn't know about, and which has quite a few other books that look really good. Sadly, however, Jenny Colvin died suddenly around the time I finished this book in May. Her death is a great loss to the online bookworm community, and I still miss her a lot. Thanks for your wonderful podcast and happy reading in 2023. Mm. So thanks, Karen, for sending that email. Uh, it's it's a great to hear about that book. I, I have followed the Yale uh, public publishing line for years and somehow missed this one. Uh, so I appreciate that. But I also really loved your email for just kind of being a, a reflection on the year, both uh, good and bad things and some hard things that have that have been part of 2022. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that she mentioned Jenny. Jenny was such a great part of the book community, such a huge loss for the book community. And, you know, I I loved all of her episodes, but I did especially love her year end episodes where she would have a bunch of different readers record their favorite books and she would kind of intersperse Mm -hmm. them with hers, which is actually something that, you know, we did a version of that last year where we had read, you know, some submissions from listeners. And then this year, I'm excited to say we have, you know, some audio recordings. And so as we were getting those in and I was listening to those, I actually thought about Jenny and those episodes and how much I'm going to miss, you know, I've already missed her and how much I'm going to miss her year end episodes. So yeah, thank you, Karen, for, for weighing in and for bringing up Jenny and and all the great stuff that she's done. All right, Paul. Well, it is, I believe our turn to 
get moving here. You know, we can only dilly dally so long. Yes. Before I need to know what your tenth favorite book of the year was. No All ifs, right. no ifsies, no could have been anything else. This this okay. li- I know you've put a lot of time and thought into this. You've weighed each book perfectly. <laughs> And Perfectly. here's your number 10. <laughs> Set in stone. I chiseled it into actually a stone tablet, so it's all good. There you go. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no, as always, it was it was so much fun, but also like, oh, boy, this is hard to like figure out which ones you're going to cut out of your top 10, but I think I got a good solid list here. So number 10 on my list is The Promise by Damon Galgut, published by Europa. Um, so I read Galgut's book In a Strange Room years and years ago, and I really loved it. But for whatever reason, I hadn't ever gotten around to reading any more of his books, even though I've owned a few more over the years. Um, But this one I picked up after all the buzz it got after winning the Booker Prize last year. Um, So, you know, it's a family saga that's set back in the 1980s, and it follows an Afrikaner family in South Africa. Um, As as the book opens, there's a young girl named Amor, who overhears her dying mother promise the family's black servant that she will inherit the family's property after the mother dies. And because this is happening during apartheid, obviously that is a very controversial and even technically illegal thing to promise. But in spite of that, the, the young girl, Amar, spends the following decades, you know, trying to convince her father to kind of follow up on this promise and her mother's dying wish. So it stretches over time. It starts, like I said, in the 1980s, and it goes to the, nearly the present day. And it basically tracks a lot of the changes that are taking place within this family, but also obviously the country as it changes so much from the 80s to present. Um, It's divided up into four different sections and each one kind of follows a different member of the family. And it also highlights a different part of South Africa's development. So, you know, it's a really interesting book. I've seen it compared to everything from like Salman Rushdie and Midnight's Children because there's some magical realism elements. Um, Kwetzi's Disgrace, of course, comes up because of the you know, the South African connection there. Um, But, you know, despite sometimes some pretty tough subject matter, there's also kind of a playfulness. And like I said, that magical realism that that keeps it from going really dark, I would say. Um, He has a very theatrical way of writing. And so I pulled out like an example. He says, what happens in a room lingers there invisibly, all deeds, all words, always, not seen, not heard, except by some, and even then imperfectly. In this very room, both birth and death have taken place. Long ago, maybe, but the blood is still visible on certain days when time wears thin. So, like, he'll focus in on a person or a family, but then he's really good at drawing back into moments like that. That quote actually reminded me of one of my favorites that I had read in that previous book of his that I'd marked in a strange room. I was just going to read that, even though it's not from The Promise. It says, a journey is a gesture inscribed in space. It vanishes even as it's made. You go from one place to another place and on to somewhere else again, and already behind you there is no trace that you were ever there. The roads you went down yesterday are full of different people now. None of them know who you are. In the room you slept in last night, a stranger lies in the bed. Dust covers over your footprints. The marks of your fingers are wiped off the door. From the floor and table, the bits and pieces of evidence that you might have dropped are swept up and thrown away, and they never come back again. The very air closes behind you like water, and soon your presence, which felt so weighty and permanent, is completely gone. Things happen once only and are never repeated, never return, except in memory. So as you can tell from those two snippets, I mean, he's a really, really good writer. He's really good on history, 
there's a theme, I think, through a lot of my top 10 books of this balance between individual lives and bigger moments in history and how those two interconnect. And so anyway, I think, you know, this one does a really nice job of that. And I'm looking forward to, you know, reading more of his books. Like I said, I've had a few of them. And for some reason, he's one of those authors, in spite of now loving both of his books that I've read. I haven't yet read any more, but I think that's got to change in 2023. So <laughs> yeah, that's my number 10, The Promise by Damon Galgut. That's still one that I need to read. I have read a handful, well, not a handful. I think he's only written a handful, but I, mm-hmm. I've read two, three of his novels in the past okay. and really enjoyed them, but I haven't read The Promise yet for some yeah. stupid reason. I mean, there's no, well, I have no good reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I, why it took me so long, but it is nice when you read you know, we talked about prize winners a few episodes ago, and it's nice when you read a long listed book or especially a winner and you're just like, yep, that was fully deserving. You know, there's no controversy about that. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about this one. It, it works on a whole lot of levels that to me justify any praise that it's getting. So yeah, if anybody hasn't read it, I would definitely encourage them to, to pick it up. Yeah. Nope. That sounds good. Yeah. So how about you? What's your number 10? All right. So this one's Kind of my number 10 because it's so recent. I only finished it about a week ago. And so I thought it it might be higher on my list if I had more time with it. Certainly belongs on it, but I'll just make sure it's it's in here. And it's one that was on your list last year. It's one that I said I was going to be reading over the winter time. It's Drifts by Kate Ah. Zambrino. Yes. And I'm, I'm reading this thing and thinking, okay, this is a, a kind of a work of autofiction. Mm-hmm. She's she's writing the book Drifts while she's writing, you know, as, as we're reading this, she's she's kind of like journal entries, I guess, is, is a way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. There's a, a timeline here and she's just going through her days and talking about what's what's happening, her her anxiety about certain things, you know, the boredom, the distractions, all of these various things. And while trying to write this book drifts and what does this book mean? And so she refers back to other authors and I don't know why it was so compelling. I was reading it. I probably read 200 pages um, on the last day that I read it. And I think I'd read most of the rest of it the day before and I'm thinking, who, who do you think you are, Brandon Sanderson? You know, like what is this? <laughs> this is not a plot-driven uh, book by any means, but it was very compelling to keep on going. And they're short segments, so oftentimes, you know, you read one that might be a half page. It's very easy to just turn the page and keep on going. Mm-hmm. But I really loved the ideas in it. Um, she starts it by talking about Rilke. And his own letters and and um, artistic attempts, and one thing that he said in a in a letter to uh, to Clara, he says one lives so badly because one always comes into the present unfinished, unable, distracted, and Kate Zambrano talks about that I think quite a bit. She's trying to write her present tense. She says here. But as she says on the her first little section, how can a paragraph be a day or a day a paragraph? Now, but, but, but I couldn't often exist in the room or even in this paragraph now. I found myself always distracted. So how do you do that in a book? How do you write and capture time and 
and boredom and the porousness of the day is kind of how she puts it. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when trying to capture this present moment, uh, because once you set it down, it becomes kind of something else. We talked about that at the beginning of this episode. You know, those moments in the day that you're stealing in order to read at the time, there are a lot of distractions. You can feel them, but give it, give it a little bit of space to get into the past. And it starts to feel quite different. It feels more solid. It feels more like a concrete thing mm-hmm. for better and for worse. And I really thought her, uh, her, her, I, I guess project here, uh, whether she's a hundred percent successful, this feels just like living life, yeah. <laughs> you know, or whether she's not is a really interesting thing in it. And, and there's some drama and such in it, you know, it's not a perfect, um, I, I started at this point in 2015 and, um, but, you know, I just wrote every day until this thing happened. No, there were, there are unexpected events in her life that really try this project and put it to the test. Yeah. <laughs> and I really loved that element. I just thought this is a fantastic uh, book. I don't know how to classify it. I don't necessarily care, but I'm glad that I finally sat down to read it and certainly belongs on my top 10 list. I just, like I say, I just finished it and thought I'd already written my top 10 list. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. the easiest one to kick out is the old number 10. So I just slipped it in there. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad that it made it onto your list. And yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it is one of those books that I do think as you sit with it over time, at least for me, it really grew. And that's another theme among some of my books this mm-hmm. year is so fascinating how some of those books that you finish them and you appreciate them, but then they just keep nibbling at the edges of your mm-hmm. mind, you know? So yeah, I'm so glad that you, you enjoyed it. And like you said, I, I just love the way that she touches on the frustrations of life. And that includes creativity, you know, trying to mm-hmm. be creative during stress, but it, I think it applies to just living life amidst, you know, distractions and boredom mm-hmm. and challenges. And she's, you know, walking the dog to kind of kill some time and there's neighborhood dramas that are happening. And then (laughs) there's also near the end, some sections, as I recall, that are a lot touching on motherhood. And Mm -hmm. that's just such, I've, you know, I keep talking about all these themes, but that's something else that comes up in my books this year. And it came up in my books last year of just, you know, creativity and, and art surrounded by motherhood and parenthood or just some of these other things. There's so many interesting themes in such a slim book drifts. It's, it's amazing how much she packs into that. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for the recommendation. Thanks for oh. push, you know, keeping on your pedaling over there. Right. That's right. I'll get there. You know eventually. Me. I'm never shy <laughs> with my evangelical uh, attempts for certain books. And, and like we've said, there's a whole group of people out there who have kind of put it on my radar. So just pass the love along. Right. There we are. All right. Well, number nine, Paul. Number nine. All right. Number nine for me is Trieste by Dasha Derndich, translated from the Croatian by Ellen Elias Bursach and published by, I guess it's Macklehouse or Macklehose Press, which was a press I hadn't actually heard about when I was looking on there to see who it was published by. I was like, oh, I don't huh. recognize that one. But um, so this is whoa, quite a book. I saw one review describe it as a novel in the documentary style of the German writer W.G. Zewald. So I'm obviously trying to get your attention there, Trevor. Yes. Mentioning Zewald again. It says, but also as a memorial of names and a novel about one woman's attempt to find order in her life. And I thought that was a really good starting point because this is a big, complicated book. Um, It's fascinating. It's heartbreaking. 
it blends kind of personal memories with historical accounts of the atrocities of war. So it starts out, the narrator is this elderly woman. I believe she's in her 80s and her name is Haya Tadeshi. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and as we start the book, she's sitting in a room and she's sifting through this basket of records and documents and photographs that are all related to the Nazi occupation of that part of Italy where she lives. Um, you know, there's photographs, fragments, maps, testimonies from the Nuremberg trials, you know, all kinds of stuff, um, including the deaths of a lot of Italian Jews in the concentration camps of Trieste. So the reason that she's kind of on this obsessive search and, and looking through all this is it's a quest that she's going on to research her son, who she has mm. not seen in 62 years. Um, her son was fathered by an SS officer back during the occupation of, of that area and then was taken from her by the German authorities. So that's kind of what's driving this. But as she's researching, she's coming up with all these different things, including kind of tracking her child's father through time. His name is Kurt Franz and he basically has risen through the Nazi or back then he rose through the Nazi ranks and became just a, a very nasty, you know, person. So, you know, the book focuses on her personal story, but of course it's also reflecting she's one of thousands and thousands of people who were impacted by all these events that happened. And so, as I was saying in that previous book, like it's another one of those that kind of balances between the very personal and real emotions and, and tragedies that happen on a personal level. But then it's also, you know, drawing that out into bigger major political and global things that are happening as well. So one thing I liked about the author is she's very honest and very frank about the role of citizens and bystanders when big things like this are happening. So there's a quote where it says, the Tedeschi family are a civilian family, bystanders who keep their mouths shut, but when they do speak, they sign up the fascism. Bystanders, for 60 years now, these blind observers have been pounding their chests and shouting, we are innocent because we didn't know. These yes men, these enablers of evil. And so, you know, it's pretty strong. There's some, some of those points, but it's kind of obviously saying, you know, just because you're you're there and you're not directly involved doesn't always mean that you're you're innocent of some of the stuff that's going on. So, I think I talked about this in an earlier episode, you know, briefly, maybe during what I was reading at the time. And I, I think I mentioned there about halfway through the book, the flow of the novel just stops completely, and there's 40 pages of names of Jews who were killed in Italy around that time, and it is just obviously, you know, just page after page after page. It, it's one of those things where you. You could just skim through it, but I tried to take some time and spend some time with it to kind of acknowledge what that means. And in mm -hmm. each one of those as a person, of course, it's kind of hard for your mind to conceive that because just seeing this sea of names. But um, so that is kind of, you know, not shying away from the fact of this book is, is very, very tough to read. Um, but I think it's incredibly powerful and important. Um, it's really good about history and the need to not flinch from things that have happened in the past. You know, that idea of if you have to pay attention to these things in, in order to not repeat them. So there's this really good section here. It says, um, we should probably be able to learn something from the repetition of history, Apeccio est matter studorium. But despite the fact that history stubbornly repeats itself, we are bad learners and history brazen and stubborn does not desist. It goes right on repeating and repeating itself. I will repeat myself until I faint, it says. I will repeat myself despite you, it says. Until finally you come to your senses, it says. Yet we do not come to our senses. We just grow our hair, hide, and lie and feign ignorance. Besides, for some of us, those of us who, like Santa Claus, lug sacks on our backs, sacks brimming with the sins of our ancestors, history has no need to return. History is in our marrow, and here in our bones it drills rheumatically, and no medicine can cure that. 
History is in our blood, and in our blood it flows quietly and destructively, while on the outside there's nothing. On the outside, all is calm and ordinary, and until one day, history, our history, the history in our blood, in our bones, goes mad and starts eroding the miserable, crumbling ramparts of our immunity, which we have been cautiously raising for decades. So, whew, you know, it's it's hard-hitting, like I said. it's There's no doubt about mm. that. So, um, real quickly, I just wanted to touch. So, I was talking about this book on Twitter back when I read it, and one of our Twitter friends, Bram Presser, who is the author of The Book of Dirt, which actually I think might come up in one of our episodes <laughs> from, from a reader when, when mm-hmm. it comes to their audio recordings. But I, like I said, I posted something about this and he started telling me he'd actually ended up corresponding with uh, Dasha Dernjit back before she died, obviously, and um, basically became friends with her. And so he sent me a link to a blog that, that he had written shortly after her death. And I just wanted to real briefly read a bit of that because it's really an amazing post that he did. He says, back in July, 2012, I was in London perusing the new releases in Hatchards. For some reason, I was drawn to one book in particular. Its dust jacket was a simple tan, the color of unbleached pulp. The author's name was unfamiliar to me, though I must confess a soft spot for part of it. My grandmother's name was also Dasha. And those red lines, stark bolts bleeding from the letters of the title, Trieste. Train tracks, perhaps, bent briefly out of shape to form the symbol that still strikes fear into any Jew who might happen upon it. S.S. I flicked through the pages, saw the photographs, the documents, the transcripts, the lists. I read the first page right there in the store. The, the narrator sitting with her box of memories, and I was transfixed. I went to the counter, bought it, and spent the rest of the day under your spell. He's writing this to the author after she died. I knew right away that I had stumbled across an outright classic, a revelation. Had I only read your magnificent book, it would have been enough. I reviewed it a couple of weeks later on this blog. You must have set up a Google alert, because within a few days I received an email, polite but unimpressed. Dasha Derntish calling. It began, thank you for understanding my book. You then took issue with one aspect of what I'd said. I'd been sucked into a controversy surrounding the book that you thought unfounded. We discussed it at length, emails flying back and forth, and I was swayed by what you had to say. For the first and last time ever, I printed what amounted to a retraction. Trieste went on to become my book of the year, at which point it should have ended. Who has the chutzpah to write to a blogger to complain anyway? Isn't that the cardinal rule? Ignore your reviewers? Do not engage. It can only end badly. But somehow, in those furious few days, we had proven the adage wrong. We had forged a bond. You, the literary titan of Croatia. Me, a struggling writer here in Australia who spent most of his time procrastinating, reading books by the dozen, and pontificating about them on the internet, when he should have been writing. We were, dare I say it, becoming friends. And so it goes on, and I was going to um, ask Trevor, I think if, if you wouldn't mind, we'll stick the, the link to that in the show notes. And I would encourage yeah. people to read that. It's a really fascinating story and a really good insight into both the author and some of the bigger things going on. But anyway, I know that I was a little long winded there, but I feel like this is one of those books that, that justifies it. It's a very powerful, amazing <laughs> book. So yeah. So that's my number nine. Excellent. Yeah. And for sure, we'll put that in the, in the show notes with the, the newsletter. All right. Well, I'm going to back us up just a little bit, but not not with delight or anything like that. That was fantastic to to hear about. And I've never I haven't read that yet. I need to. But my number nine book is John Scalzi's Old Man's War. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, moving away from the the serious uh, seriousness of many of our books that are going to be, you know, highlighted on these two podcasts. I wanted to to make sure that I put on one of the the really fun books that I read this year and one that genuinely made its way onto my list. It's not like I, 
you know, thought, well, this is number 15, but I want to, I just need it represented, you know? Right. No, I, I really enjoyed Old Man's War. Um, I remember talking about it when I first started reading it and saying, hey, this is a book about, uh, you know, some future point in the Earth's history, you know, future, mm-hmm. <laughs> future point in the Earth's history. Um, <laughs> we travel the, the galaxies, you know, we can go and see other planets and everything, but it's created its own battle. And uh, every, you know, a lot of other alien races are colonizing as well. And there's just a fight over resources. And so what has happened is people on Earth, when they have reached 70, is it 75? I think it's 75. It's been a bit since I read it. When you get old, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you can elect to join the military. And they don't know what happens. They leave Earth and that's it. But they're kind of rumors that, well, maybe they completely renew your body. You know, maybe, or, or maybe you're cannon fodder. Maybe you're just sent out there because they need a bunch of bodies to, to block people. And why not the old people? Mm-hmm. But there's kind of this also uh, promise or at least a rumor that if you survive a couple of years, you go and get a, a new life started. So it seems to make sense that it's actually part of, you know, uh, the idea that you get rejuvenated, you get young again. And that's the first part of the book. And you know that our narrator, his wife has died of cancer. And so he thinks, you know, I might as well join. Let's see what happens here. And a lot of that just felt like throwaway stuff, you know, to start this this big plot of fun but I loved how so much of the stuff that happens at the beginning comes back around and becomes important to the character in the book. And, you know, I was reading along and thinking, oh, this is really creative. That's kind of fun. And then stuff about his wife comes back around. And I thought a really brilliant way that was compelling, interesting, um, unique, and I loved it. And it keeps playing out over the course of a series of books at this point. And, um, you know, I'm going to read them all. I haven't yet, but I, I'm on my way through them. And just thought, man, this this is a good sci-fi series. When I posted about it on Instagram, um, I know there are a lot of people who are like, oh, good, you know, this is one of my favorites or, you know, along those lines. And mm-hmm. it, it really is a, a good, fast read. But again, one that I think is really well done and becomes you know it explores some things that we like to see explored of memory and identity and um, relationships I just really thought it was great yeah I'm so glad I remember you talking about that and if I recall it's like a mass paperback kind of size that yeah. you can kind of lug yep. around that, that's so yep. nice I, I love that kind of books I do too <laughs> is that do you feel like the first book could stand alone. I know it's part of a bigger series did you feel like it came to a completion that was satisfying or would it be the kind of thing where you're in for the long haul. No, I think you can read just the first one and and be done. In fact, they all seem to... I mean, he's creating this world. I think they're all kind of discrete, unique stories. Uh, book two, for example, does have some callbacks to book one. But... And, and I would recommend you read book one or a lot of the... Like, the world of book two probably wouldn't make a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, book one definitely has its own its own story, its own things happening. And I think you can start there, but I don't, I don't think you'd, by the end, I think you'd be like, I want to see where not just the story, you know, or, or the world where this goes, but I, I want to know more about how he's going to continue to explore these themes in, yeah. in the future. Oh, it sounds fascinating. I, I don't think I'd ever heard of that author until you mentioned it. And then I, ever since then, when I'm at the library or bookstores, I feel like I'm seeing his name pop out. So it's probably one of those that was hiding in plain sight. And I just 
you know, maybe my eyes glossed over it because I'm not always drawn drawn to sci-fi. But now that you've mentioned him, he's on my radar. I'm definitely intrigued. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, I think I think it'll be I think it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you uh, have sprinkled in some some lighter and more entertaining fare. <laughs> Well, again, it wasn't necessarily a, a deliberate attempt to sprinkle them in um, because I, I tried hard to not do that. Right? Oh, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't want something that was just representative of my year. I wanted my top ten, my favorite mm-hmm. reads of the year, mm-hmm. and so it definitely, definitely landed on there. Awesome. <laughs> but I don't. I don't think we're getting to many more like this on my list from here on out. <laughs> Though I still have fun ones coming up. Okay. Good. <laughs> So as Paul uh, said earlier, we have selfishly asked others to help us with this work and not only to send us, you know, what's your favorite book of the year, but to, you know, go through the trouble of recording and sending us that snippet. And we're excited to share these through the next couple of episodes. Um, But first, let's hear from John Self and see what he has to say about his book of the year. My recommendation for 2022 is Audrey McGee's novel, The Colony. It's set on an island off the coast of Ireland in the 1970s, when two men descend on the islanders with very different motives. Um, One's an Englishman, Lloyd, an artist who plans to paint the landscape and makes a self-important nuisance of himself, treating the locals like his servants. And the other's a Frenchman, Masson, who thinks he's helping the islanders to retain their Irish language, but actually he's just as much there for his own glory and self-satisfaction as Lloyd is. Uh, the poor islanders are stuck between the two colonizers, while acts of terrible violence from mainland Ireland are reported on the news, a sort of extension of the conflict on the island. It's, uh, the Colony is a funny book in places, but it's also a serious one that treats the reader like a grown-up, with no simplistic answers or desire to force the reader into a particular viewpoint, and that seems to me to be a rare quality these days. It's also a very carefully written book, where every word counts. Audrey McGee is a fan of um, Marguerite Duras, of Beckett, those sort of paired-back styles, and you can see their influence in her writing. I read The Colony at the start of the year when it was released in the UK. It stayed with me all year, and I read nothing else for tw- in 2022 that quite matched up to it. And that's why The Colony is my book of the year. All right, thank you, John. It's always a delight to, to hear from John. Paul, Paul and I have, have been, you know... Uh, fans of John for I don't know how long 15 years or so years yeah he's one of the reasons that I started up my blog I had stumbled across his blog the asylum back in 2008 or something Mm -hmm. like that and thought hey I can try to do that too and he was uh, some the first person that I really corresponded with about all of that stuff so great to have you in here thanks so much yeah and i'll just say looking on my bookshelves i'm always amazed when i think about it he <laughs> shaped so much of my reading over the last 15 years so it was really cool to have him send in his favorite thanks john well next we have Lori feathers she was a guest on our podcast uh, just a little bit ago to talk about book prizes now let's hear what she has to say about her favorite book of the year greetings trevor and paul and all my friends at the mooks and the gripes It's my pleasure to join you today to give a 2022 reading recommendation by sharing with you a book that I read this year and very much enjoyed. The book is The Deceptions by Jill Bylosky and is published by Counterpoint Press. With The Deceptions, Jill Bylosky has created a novel at once both thought-provoking and page-turning. Abigail, a middle-aged poet, 
narrates her story at a time when crises in her personal and professional life crescendo and intersect. Her only solace, the halls and galleries of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where she daily wanders seeking wisdom from the ancients to guide her uncertain feelings about lust, gender roles, family fidelity, and creativity. Photographs of the artwork are embedded in the text, and they punctuate the plot's collaboration with Greek and Roman myths. Most of all, it is the expressiveness of Bylowski's language and descriptive, relatable, and sensual prose that is so gripping. I feel like I know Abigail intimately, and she remains on my mind in the weeks since I finished this wonderfully thoughtful and engrossing novel. Season's greetings, guys. All right. Thank you, Lori. We would now like to turn the time over to Dorian Stuber, our great Twitter friend, uh, fellow podcaster, to hear what his book of the year is. The best book I read this year uh, is The Makioka Sisters by Junichiro Tanizaki, first published in 1948 and translated from the Japanese by Edward G. Seidensticker in 1957. Here's what I wrote about it uh, on my blog. Tremendous novel about four sisters from an aristocratic Osaka family in the late 1930s. Filled with event, but also leisurely, a little aimless, as if unwilling to commit to anything as definitive and perhaps crass as action or plot. Fittingly, the book repeatedly returns to the family's attempt to marry off the third of the sisters, Yokiko, who is 30 and rapidly approaching irredeemable spinsterhood. She declines each laboriously contracted proposal, always finding some problem or other, most of which boil down to her almost Bartleby-like preferring not to. So there's kind of like not a lot going on in the book and also tons going on in the book. Its scope is huge. It's also modest. It's about the passing of a traumatic history, uh, events in Manchuria, entering into the war, but it's also localizing a family. I just could not get enough of this book. I thought it was fantastic. I still think about it all the time. I want to thank Paul and Trevor for lots of good listening this year and for giving me the chance to share this bit of reading with you. Hope all good things for 2023. All right. Thanks, Dorian. I do remember when Dorian was tweeting about the Makioka sisters. Mm -hmm. I've got the Criterion um, Blu-ray of the movie adaptation. But I haven't I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> yeah, I remember him talking about that one too. It's definitely one that I've added to my list thanks to his uh, reviews of it. And for this segment, let's round it out with uh, Kim McNeil, our good friend on Twitter as well. Uh, we'll be talking about another book that I'm ashamed to say I haven't read. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Kim McNeil. Thank you so much, Paul and Trevor, for inviting me to participate. I always find it impossible, though, to select a favorite book, especially this year with Dorothy Richardson's Pilgrimage and several of Toni Morrison's and Willa Cather's novels, all of which I highly recommend. So I thought instead I would focus on a writer that I just read for the first time and have already collected more of her short stories and journals to read before the year is over. New Zealander Catherine Mansfield published her first book in a German pension in 1911 when she was just 23 years old. It is a collection of 13 short stories and was met with considerable success, but then she decided the stories were juvenilia and refused to let it be reprinted. 
Lucky for us, her husband, John Middleton Murray, republished the collection after her early death. He wrote that it was not merely a good book, but a truly remarkable one to have written at 19. The stories were inspired by a cure stay she had while recovering from a miscarriage. She writes about female identity and gender roles and free love and the modern soul. The stories, some only a few pages long, are fresh and innovative, acutely observed, satirical, some funny, some dark and unsettling. The book is barely 100 pages, and yet each story is memorable, especially The Child Who Was Tired, which is available online and is surprisingly unsettling. Her next collection, Bliss and Other Stories, was published in 1920 and is next in my stack. Thanks again for the contribution you both make to such a rich reading community. I'm always excited when I see you've released a new podcast, and I love our ongoing conversations. Happy holidays. All right. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, John, Lori, Dorian, and Kim. That was a lot of fun. Again, I, I haven't read any of those books. A lot of them have been on my radar, and now with this uh, imprimatur, Mm-hmm. I need to get to some of these sooner than later, I think. <laughs> I know, me too. I actually haven't read any of those either. So yeah, thank you for the great suggestions and talk about people with great reading tastes. It's like, I know I need to pick those up now because if they made their top book of the year, that's saying a whole lot. And I'll mm-hmm. also just say how fun it is. I feel like I know all all of you so well, but it's so wonderful to hear people's voices and just get a little more insight into their thoughts. It's, mm-hmm. I love this. All right, Paul, it's your turn again. All right, Bring back us to, to, to number, uh, what are we on, eight. number eight? Yep. My number eight book of the year is Cold Enough for Snow by Jessica Au, published by New Directions. I really like the tagline I saw for this book in the Guardian review. It says, easy conclusions elude in this slender story about a mother and daughter's trip to Japan. And I really like that, easy conclusions elude, because this is a very slim book, not even 100 pages. The language is deceptively simple, I would say, and very straightforward. But man, there's a whole lot happening under the surface. I've had conversations with people online about like, what do you think is happening? And and just, it's one of those where even though it seems like it's pretty straightforward, there's a whole lot going on. So as the tagline mentioned, it focuses on a mother and an adult daughter who have traveled to Tokyo, I think from Australia. That's what I, my understanding, um, but they've traveled to Tokyo to spend some time together. So you follow them as they're going to museums, you know, they're walking around the city, they're eating at various restaurants, and the whole time they're talking back and forth, you know, throughout the book. Um, But despite the fact that they're communicating almost constantly, you can just sense that there's some misunderstanding and distance going on beneath the surface. Um, Like I said, it's incredibly subtle and quiet, but I really like it touches on how hard it can be to connect with other people, even, and maybe especially family. Um, even when both sides are trying, you know, it, it can still just not quite work out. So I read an interview with the author and she said that this actually started out as a short story, but then kind of grew from there. And in the interview, she says, quote, in using the journey between the mother and daughter as a container, many of the other things I'd been thinking on being a young woman in the world or feeling connected to art and literature without necessarily feeling like an artist began to find their way in, making up many of the digressions into memory that ended up in this book. So, you know, talk about echoes of Kate Zambrino and drifts right there. I mean, just that idea of being a woman, art, you know, and some of that stuff really resonated with me again. It's a theme, like I said, that keeps popping up is one of the more powerful things that I've read about over the last couple of years. Um, And I mentioned sneaky books that have kind of like stuck with me. That's what I would describe this one as because it didn't necessarily floor me when I first read it. 
But like I said, I feel like there's so much going on in the background that it's one of those, I talked about how it keeps kind of nibbling at your consciousness and you keep thinking about it. So it's really grown in my appreciation over, over time. I think I read it back in maybe May or something like that. So it's kind of like when you listen to an album, a new album, I'm dating myself Mm -hmm. saying album, but you know, a lot of times there's those songs that blow you away from right from the beginning and you listen to them over and over again. And then there's some of those other tracks that like you maybe appreciate at the time, but then five years later, 10 years later, those are the ones that stick around and, and end up becoming your all-time favorite. That's kind of what it reminded me of. So that same Guardian review says, what we hear of their conversations is quotidian and understated. At frustrating odds with the narrator's pressing hunger for connection, memories swirl of interactions with others. This novella is graceful and precise. Like the narrator fine-tuning the aperture on her Nikon camera, Al seems to say, we have to choose our scale, what we pay attention to. So... I mentioned how it's very subtle, um, the, the writing. I'm, I'm not going to read this whole section. It's, it's pretty big. But just to give a little taste of the writing, like I said, they're kind of walking around Tokyo together and just exploring and being tourists. And it says, in the gallery's cafe, we found a table for two by the window, and I ordered two image cakes inspired by the exhibition and two green teas. While we ate, I asked my mother what she had thought of the work we had just seen, and she looked up at me in a brief panic as if called to give an answer to a question she did not understand. I said that it was all right, that she should feel free to answer truthfully with whatever she thought. I said that if she still had the energy, there was one more gallery that I would like us to see, not far, but just a few stations away. Actually, the gallery was a bit further than I let on. I could see that she was tired. All I had to do was tell her not to worry about it, that we had seen enough today and could go back to the hotel to rest. But for some reason, I let the question hang in the air, and doing so was like applying a kind of firm but gentle pressure. After a moment, she nodded, and I nodded too, and we collected our plates. So it's just, I don't know what it is about it. It's just very, like I said, subtle, but you can just tell, like I said, it's like you can see a whole back history of their relationship and kind of maybe put some of your own experiences onto that and and kind of understand the complications that are going on in this relationship. So really good. Um, Obviously, I really like that Guardian review because I'm going to read one more snippet just to close out this part, but... It says she has mentioned her taste for subverting narrative expectation, open endings, scenes in which nothing happens, yet everything happens. Cold Cold Enough for Snow is exactly this, a book of inference and small mysteries. The stories, memories, and images Al puts on the table escape easy conclusions, like the lines of a screen painting the narrator admires. Quote, some were strong and definite, while others bled and faded, giving the impression of vapor. And yet when you looked, you saw something, mountains, disillusion, form, and color running forever downwards. So I thought that was just a beautiful review about a beautiful book. So that was my number eight book. It's like I said, it's tiny and very different from some of the other books on my list, but it just keeps coming up in my thoughts over and over again. Well, I see your New Directions book, okay, which is also tiny, and I'm going to double down and bring up nice. one of their uh, storybooks from the year that we, we've talked about in the past uh, is a book by Cesar Ira, the famous magician translated by Chris Andrews. And of course, I mean, if you would have thought about it, Paul, you would have, you would have, you would have guessed that I would have an Ira on here. Is that exactly isn't that fair? Absolutely. He, he always shows up on my year end review lists, assuming there's a book by him out that year. I'm a sycophant. I get it. I, I can't get enough of his, his playfulness, even the ones that I don't understand at all. 
I still just love them. I don't, I don't know why. I can't quite understand it. I'm glad we were able to just to explore a little bit of this in our podcast we did on mm-hmm. him earlier in the year. But I loved the famous magician. I loved the way that it starts. I remember reading it on the podcast. It starts with a storm, and he's just you know he's mm-hmm. walking in the park, going to the bookseller fair. And then all of a sudden he starts describing the scene (laughs) with trees Mm -hmm. bent and statues all over the place. And he's just, you know, it's this nice morning for him. But he gets into talking about how he is suffering from writer's block. He he says, I didn't want to know what my as yet unwritten books would be about. I wanted them to emerge from reality rather than my thoughts, like a clown on a spring jumping out of a box. But the problem was nothing was jumping. I hadn't been able to write for some time. The tributaries that nourished my inspiration were starting to run dry. And without those tributaries, all I would have was the central current of my life, which I had striven so hard to keep secret. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds serious. Maybe it is. (laughs) But it's also so fun. It's like, I'm not writing about my life. I'm not going there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had invested all my spiritual riches in the elaboration of screen memories and exploiting them to go on writing was the last thing I wanted to do. The storms of life had left painful scars. I wanted to forget. I had no idea that oblivion was tensing its muscles, preparing to attack. <laughs> wow. And then he introduces a man named Ovando, who is an, basically a down and out with intellectual pretensions. <laughs> He's one of the booksellers. Ira, or, you know, the narrator here, never really wants to, to run into him and talk to him. Um, if I if I knew that if he saw me, he wouldn't let me get away, which made me keep an eye out for him and avoid the places where he liked to, ha- where he liked to hang around. He was a fat, scruffy man, somewhere between 40 and 50, his hair and beard forming a single shaggy mass that almost hit a pale, puffy, girlish face with pursed lips, uniformly rotten teeth, and bloodshot eyes. He had a wobbling gait, and the pauses in his speech conveyed the smugness and assurance of a man supremely full of himself. Conceit was never less justified. How he survived was a mystery. But people like that always get by somehow, making those of us who work and lead orderly, middle-class lives feel stupid. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. It's, it's so fun. And and yet there is the seriousness. There is the the memory, the, hit, the hiding, the secrets, the wish for oblivion, the writer's block, the, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But it's also a game and playful and just zany. I love it. Mm. So... Definitely on my list, The Famous Magician by Cesar Ira. And we know that Fulgentius comes out next year. Pretty good chance it'll be on my list next year. I was going to say, you could probably just write that one in pen right now on your list. Well, I've already, they sent me a copy. And so I I have a good idea. I have a good idea. Wow. What an overachiever. You're already planning ahead that far. Planning ahead. Yes, I've already got next year's episode all laid out (laughs) for me. Impressive. All right, let's hear your number seven, Paul. Okay, well, I'm going to take us back to a 
dark road and a big big book road um, isn't that a bingo option you know paul going all dark and all yes okay yeah, you know you're well, such a jovial person but man the darkness in this man i right? know <laughs> i don't know what to say about that maybe that's where i let it out but <laughs> number seven zone by matthias enard translated from the french by charlotte mandel published in the edition that i read it by open letter but i know that Fitzgeraldo has also put out a copy um so i came across this quote from jose saramago that says punctuation is like traffic signs too much of it distracts you from the road which you travel (laughs) and i thought that was a pretty good quote considering you know another one of my themes from the last few years these giant books with no sentences basically that just ramble on in these big diatribes and this is yes one of those plays very loosey-goosey with punctuation Um, it's often billed as a 500 page novel composed of a single sentence Um, But as is often the case when we've talked about books that are billed that way, you know, it's not entirely true. It's not nearly as daunting as it sounds. Um, Basically, the periods are are replaced with semicolons and it does create a flow. Um, But I would say that, you know, despite the subject matter, it's it's very easy to read in spite of the way that you often hear it described. Um, There's also chapter breaks given throughout, which kind of gives the reader a breather. You know, some of these books that are in this, this, uh, you know, non- punctuated family don't even give you that much so this does have those that kind of break break it up and give you a little bit of a breather and then it's really interesting because there's also a few sections where the narrator is reading a book and there'll be entire sections that are him reading that book and those are um, punctuated very traditionally so you know it's, it's a very interesting way that that Anard has done that but basically the narrator is a man named Francis Merkovich he's a French intelligence agent who fought alongside the Croatian forces during the Yugoslavian wars of the 1990s. And when we are first introduced to him, he is traveling by train on his way to the Vatican, where he plans to sell this whole briefcase full of information that he's compiled about all the various war crimes that have been committed in this area that he calls the zone, which is basically, you know, parts of the Mediterranean and Central Europe. And so his goal is to sell all these secrets and and documents to the Vatican I, there's a sum mentioned, I can't remember how much it is, but it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then he's going to take that money and kind of start over and run away with his girlfriend. So that's the layout of this book. Um, and the way that it is punctuated, I think actually has reasoning behind it because I've seen it interpreted as he's riding on this train. So it's kind of that rhythm, you know, that cycling rhythm as you're riding on a train of just the wheels clacking and swaying back and forth. And it kind of carries you along with that momentum. So I think that's definitely part of it. But I also think it's important to add this guy, he's probably has PTSD. I mean, he's had a rough life. And so he's on amphetamines and he's a heavy drinker, probably an alcoholic. And so I think that also lends itself to this kind of like frenetic pace that there's probably some artificial, you know, stimulants that are going on there too. So um, in a review on the LA Review of Books, I saw that says, uh, Zone is not really about Murkovich. In some ways, it's not a novel at all. And his story could be told in less than 200 pages. Rather, The bulk of the book recounts various atrocities in the region throughout the 20th century, episodes from the Armenian Genocide, the Yugoslav Wars, the Spanish Civil War. As Inard weaves these pieces into his feverish monologue, one gets the sense of history as something geological, a succession of of ruins and conflicts laid upon one another like layers of rock. The dead are the incriminating fossils perpetually finding their way to the surface. So again, a lot in common with Trieste and some of these other books where it's talking about, you know, history, 
I like that geological description. Um, I think that's very accurate because it, it is stuff that's been buried, but it's it's there. And if you start digging, you can find, you know, all kinds of evidence of, of the past in history. So um, given the region that it's in, it's a lot of references to Homer and the Trojan War. You know, there's definitely some classical influences. I even saw someone point out that there's 24 chapters. So given that it basically happens in a day, that could obviously be the 24 hours in a day. But they also pointed out that's the number of chapters in the Iliad. So lots of stuff going on that that's very interesting. But, you know, this is the second of Ennard's books that I've read, and I'm already kind of eyeing his other book, Compass, which many of people have told me is actually his best. I know Zone, a lot of people really love, but Compass I've also heard described as his best. So who knows, maybe in a couple of years, Compass will make its way onto one of my top 10 lists. But yeah, if anybody hasn't I read I love this, Compass. I love it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you read Zone? I have, but it's been, yeah. that was the first one I read by him and mm-hmm. it was some time ago and it's kind of washed. I mean, I remember writing it like a wave. I think I read it mm-hmm. on a train for a oh, period wow. of time. That's perfect. Yeah. I mean, like I keep saying, it's absolutely rough subject matter, but again, it's that idea of not flinching mm-hmm. and it's important to acknowledge this stuff and look back at it. And I just thought the way that he talks about war, both his personal experiences, it goes clear back to classical influences, but also just that region, you know, which I admittedly don't know nearly about as, as much about as I should, you know, just seeing how ravaged it's been by war and the impacts that it's had on all these lives. And it does have a little bit of like a, I wouldn't say it's heavy on the spy element, but the fact that he's gathering all this information and he's going to go sell it to the Vatican and kind of escape this troubled life that he has. There's a little bit of like that adventure to it, but you know, there's a lot going on for sure. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I do think you'll, you know, whenever you throw a compass on, it might it might show up on a, on a year end list for you. And yeah. zone is definitely um, an appropriate one. I, I I never made it through the one with like tell them of battles, uh, elephants and kings. El- yeah, but I was enjoying it. I can't quite remember what happened. Um, mm. I need to get back to it. It's so short that I think I always was like, oh, I can get this. I can get back to this and get it done in a day or two. Yeah. Well, well you know, that, that just knocked me out of it. So, <laughs> right. That was the only other one of his that I have read actually. And that was the mm-hmm. first one of his that I read and I did enjoy it. But now that I have, you know, read Z- zone, I would like to go back and revisit that one. Like you said, it's pretty slim mm-hmm. because sometimes when you've read one of their big, huge magnum opuses or opusi, <laughs> you kind of get <laughs> a little bit more perspective on who the author is and what they're trying to do. So I don't know, that may or may not happen, but I'd be interested to kind of go back and visit, you know, what might be considered a, a more minor work. I don't know, but yeah. yeah, he's an amazing writer for sure. All right. Well, I don't have any more fun on okay. my list this week. Buckle in everybody. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going quite with, with you on Trista and Zone, mm. but my next one is Gwendolyn Riley's My Phantoms. It came out in the UK, was it just last year, 2021, I believe. Um, I imported it, never read it, but then I found out it was coming out from New York Review Books, you know, that beautiful line. And it came out with a companion of her novel, First Love, uh, which I still haven't read because I am kind of saving it. I didn't want to, I, I did want to jump and read both of them at the same time, but I thought, no, I'm going to wait a few months and get back into Gwendolyn Riley um, with uh, First Love. But My Phantoms. Man, I didn't. I had no idea what this was about, other than I knew a lot of people really loved it, and and uh, I I'd been looking forward to it. 
for all I knew, it was a ghost story, supernatural elements. I, I just didn't know. Turned out it's a very simple premise of uh, essentially a mother and daughter relationship. Uh, the daughter being the narrator, Bridget. She's, um, you know, it, it, it covers a, a period of years, but more or less middle-aged um, through much of this. And her mother, Helen, who goes by Hen who is getting older as the book goes on, I think in her 60s and later on, you know, late 60s, maybe early 70s um, by the time the book ends. Uh, at the beginning, there's a little bit about father as well. Uh, but most of this book is about uh, Bridget's relationship with Helen or Bridget's attempts to manage and control and, um, you know, put boundaries up in that relationship with her mom. Um, essentially she wants to see her mom as, uh, you know, as infrequently as possible. She feels she owes her like a birthday dinner. Um, so they do meet up every year for her mom's birthday in, and it's in February. So it's usually bad weather and she's tempted to call that off and try and do something different because, you know, her mom, why would her mom need to, to travel during all this time? Um, Seems like Bridget's very cruel, but there's, you know, some some legitimacy to her desires to have a, you know, these boundaries up. And, but the book, you know, of course, isn't going to let her off that easily <laughs> either. Yeah. Just very well written, uh, very intimate, you know, very uncomfortable. Bridget's right, you know, realizing things and the, the author is telling us things that you don't want to kind of acknowledge in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, while also recognizing there's some love and some some uh, affection for this other person that you also don't feel you can be around. Um, how do I live a life without that uh, gravitational force uh, affecting it too much? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a part I thought I'd read a quote just to just to, to to look at it. It says, "This is Bridget saying, "Are you listening, Mum?" I said, "Can I tell you what I think? You need to think about what you want." And why what you get seems to leave you so empty. This comes up a lot with you, this note of disappointed expectation. I think you feel like a bargain has been broken when you say you do what you're supposed to. But you understand that a deal was never struck, don't you? It's just mm. there, there's a cruelty, but a but an honesty in in a lot of this. And it's just yeah, this is a this is a another one of those reads where I'm reading it thinking, well, I, I had no idea what this was about and this is kind of tough stuff to, to read, but is so well done. So mm. at any rate, uh, Gwendolyn Riley's my phantoms. I wonder if first love might show up on my list next year. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, that's one that, you know, I just keep hearing so much about and I have yet to pick up a copy inexplicably. I don't know why, but mm. like, I'm like you and and now you've just given me a little bit of a description, which, actually makes me want to read it more. I had no idea. All I knew was everybody loved yeah. it, but I didn't even know what it was about. So that sounds really good. Um, not to keep, not that we have to keep drawing themes, but it's interesting. Like I'm sure it's a very different book, but cold enough for snow. And that one might have some resonance with just these mother daughter relationships or just different family members in the way that there's all these years and baggage that have stacked mm-hmm. up and created all these complications it's even even the first half of trista you know yeah the the that i mean it's very different but also it's a parental 
you know, filial relationship. That's absolutely. Driving that one a little bit. It sounds like I haven't read no, it. No, absolutely. No, <laughs> for sure. It's, yeah, it's one of those things like we talk about. There are the, the books with big wars and political movements, but so many of the books that we seem to love also have that intimacy mm-hmm. and, and the personal relationships as well. So no, that sounds like a great one. Oh, well, let's take a little break for a minute. Let's take a breath, stretch okay. out just for yep. a second here, and let our listeners and, and friends do some more of the work for us again. Sounds good. <laughs> we'll start here with a pick from Ron Restrepo. Uh, thanks, Ron, for joining in. Greetings. This is Ron Restrepo, and I am here to gush about my favorite book of the year, Mercier Carterescu's Solenoid. Wonderfully translated by Sean Cotter, published by Deep Vellum, and a recent prize winner at the Guadalajara Book Fair. For me, this book is what translated fiction and indeed fiction are all about. The narrator is a Bartleby author, noting throughout that he writes to process his thoughts and dreams with no interest in publication. The book also fulfills my fascination with the history and culture of a city and a country to which I've never traveled, at least physically. Here we get to visit Budapest in the era of the communist Romania between the 60s and the 90s. We also get to meet historical figures, including the math genius who came up with the Rubik's Cube and a leading Romanian psychiatrist from the Freud era, whose research comes to life in the narrator's descriptions of his own dreams. Most importantly, the writing is a sheer pleasure to read as the narrator transports us from specific day-to-day events as a teacher into a whirlwind imaginary world through the door in the narrator's mind, literally taking us into the fourth dimension or levitating on solenoids littered around the city. In my humble view, a must read indeed. Thank you, Ron. I'm excited to get to that one. Paul, I want to talk to you about that in just one second. But first, okay. let's uh, let us let Chris Wolak, who joined us to talk about um, A Lost Lady, Willa Cather's great novel, uh, with her recommendation for the year. Hey everyone, it's Chris from the Book Cougars calling in to share my favorite read of 2022. I've had a very good reading year so far. I'm happy to say it's late November as I record this, so that means I have another month of reading to do, so who knows what gems are in my future. But um, Shudder by Ramona Emerson, published earlier this year by Soho Press, is my top read of 2022 as of today. This is one of those novels that's really hard to pigeonhole. It's kind of part mystery, thriller, horror, and also a coming-of-age story. The protagonist is a Navajo woman named Rita who works as a forensic photographer for the Albuquerque Police Department where she documents, as you can imagine, some you know pretty horrific crime scenes. The, where the horror aspect of the novel comes in is that Rita can also see dead people. This is a bit, an ability she was born with. She had it since she was a baby in the crib. And this is where Rita's backstory kind of comes in with that and is threaded throughout her current day. So you see her as a young girl being raised on the reservation by her grandmother. And I'll stop there. uh, But I do just also want to say that this is a debut novel. Ramona Emerson is a Diné filmmaker, originally from New Mexico. So this story is infused with a lot of authenticity. And it was an intense read, but also just so compelling I hated to put it down and always looked forward to to getting back to it. I hope this might appeal to some of your listeners, and I hope you all have had a great reading year. I wish you a wonderful reading year in 2023. Happy holidays, everyone. 
All right, thank you, Chris. And I I don't know that book very well, just other than what you've said. So another yeah. one I haven't read. <laughs> it sounds really good, though. And I will just mention that on an episode of the book Cougars, and I don't have that episode right in front of me, I know that she went into further detail about that. And mm. having heard her description, it does sound really tough, but really fascinating. So yeah, it sounds like a good one. All right. Next, we have Luis Panini. Thank you, Luis, for joining in. Uh, take it away with a couple of novels that I have read this time. <laughs> Hello, my name is Luis Panini, and I've read more than a few outstanding books this year, but I will only highlight two of them. First, back in January, I read for the third time James Joyce's Ulysses, and again, I was in absolute awe. I'd be lying if I said that I fully understood what I was reading, but that didn't limit the level of enjoyment that I experience every time I read that book. With that novel, I think Joyce did for literature what Turner did for painting, which is completely revolutionized it. And uh, it kind of ruined me in a way, because now when I think of Dublin, I can't picture buildings or streets, but only words. And the second one, well, uh, those who have followed my antics on social media already know that this year I got the Don DeLillo fever. I think that even though white noise only portrays in a very skewed and unnatural way a limited sliver of American society, is still one of the greatest, great American novels that I have ever read. These were my favorite books of 2022. Happy New Year, Mooks. Happy New Year, Gripes. And Happy New Year to all your listeners. All right. Thanks, Luis. I remember, Paul, you were, you've talked about your venture through Ulysses a few times. Oh, man. So. Yeah, I think about that book all the time. I, I don't know. I keep stacking up. There's a few of those Moby Dick <laughs> and Magic Mountain and Ulysses where I'm like, am I ready to read those again? <laughs> Hearing Luis talk about it made me want to. And I actually have not read White Noise. That's one oh. that I keep wanting to read and have not gotten to yet. Well, there's a film adaptation. I think it's, is it Noah Baumbach who made mm-hmm. it uh, coming out here so. shortly? So. All right. Well, last for today, but we'll have a bunch of folks joining us again next next time. Uh, we have another great evangelist. Uh, Francis Evangelista is going to be uh, telling us about her book of the year. One of my absolute favorite books of the year was Cursed Bunny. It's a set of stories by uh, Bora Chung, uh, written in Korean. It's translated into English by Anton Hur. It was on the International Booker long and short list and it is phenomenal it's it's this strange otherworldliness about it some would say it's horror i didn't think it was quite horror but there's plenty to be scared of and there's plenty to be charmed by and it 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 does this wonderful job of exploiting fears that you have that might not be common to fears like the head in the toilet and things like that and you read and you read and you read and you just want it to uh to keep unfolding, to keep challenging your conceptions about what you read and what you can expect because you don't know what you're going to to get next. And I think it's kind of funny the way people have engaged it as, you know, oh, it's a set of fables, it's it's horror, it's fantasy, it's science fiction. And they're so quick to try and attach genre to something that's in a lot of ways uh, beyond categorization. I think if you want to Test yourself a little um, to read something different and to read something completely outside the box. This one's for you. All right. Thanks, Francis. That's another book I've heard a lot about but haven't picked up yet. You know, I need to stop uh, just, you know, feeling so bad about myself. Right. You know, so it, it feels almost 
arrogantly um, prideful to be, you know, like, oh, I haven't read that one yet, but I'm sure going to, you know, it's just, right. I don't know. I don't know the best way to respond in those situations. Oh, but it's I, also kind of the, the driving. It. Yeah. And it's also kind of the driving force between behind all this, I think is just that excitement <laughs> like we've talked about. So that's when oh, I, I'm sure it was after she was talking about it that I put a hold on it at the library. And I think the release date has actually been more recent. And so I've been sitting there checking my holds, you know, probably <laughs> it's been months. And I think I just saw that oh, wow. it came out. So whenever it does come to the library, I will be getting a copy of that. Look nice. forward to reading it. Nice. The the other, so I did want to just really quickly talk to you about Solenoid um, because uh, our friend uh, Seth from the waste mailing list just did a great video on Solenoid. Very, you know, I don't know how it was. It's at least like, an hour long. I was going to say, I think it's like an hour and 20 minutes or something. Maybe something like that. A great video. And I'm very excited to read Solenoid. I did. I do have the arc and I did start it and it's fantastic. But I need to, again, stop stop belly aching and, and thinking, oh, when, when the day comes when I have all this time in the world right. and just get down and, and diligently work my way through it. But that one... Yeah is one I'm very excited about. Oh man, I am too. And it's a, a common story with me. I It comes out and I'm rushing out to buy it. I buy it almost <laughs> as soon as it's released. I'm checking the mailbox constantly and I have it and I have not yet read it. So I I do have it if we do, not if, when we do our 2023 20, plans. I mean, I'm, I would guarantee that that one will make it onto my list because nice. I was already excited and all of the reviews and buzz around it have just made me, wow. It sounds like it's a great one. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get through today's episode, Paul. I want to hear what your number six is. I'll share mine, and then we'll put a put a hold on on our list for a couple weeks. Come back and, and give our top five. But but let's That's not good. forget what is your number six? Yeah. So my number six is "Woman Run- Running in the Mountains" by Yuko Tsushima, translated from the Japanese by Geraldine Harcourt and published by NYRB Classics. So this book was republished back in February, and thanks to some motivation from our friends over at the One Bright Book podcast, I picked (laughs) it up in April to correspond with our episode where they focused on this book, which I would encourage people to listen to. It's a great episode, and I'm I'm so glad that I did kind of get caught up in sometimes that momentum from the Twitter community. Mm -hmm. Like I we you know we'll get you to read something that you might have put off otherwise, and I'm really glad I did. Um, This was the first book I've ever read by this author, but she's a very key 20th century Japanese writer. Um, and she's very well known now for writing about the roles of women in modern Japanese society and culture. So in particular, in this book, and I understand it's a bigger theme, she focuses often on single motherhood and the impacts that that has on women. And it's actually something that it's fairly um, biographical, autobiographical, in that she was both a single mother herself, and she was also raised by a single mother. She's the daughter of a widow after her father committed suicide when she was just a baby. So a lot of personal experience, I'm sure, went into this. Um, So the novel was originally published back in 1980, and it focuses on a woman named Takiko. And when we join her, she's pregnant and single, but she is planning on having her baby, which at that time in Japan, you know, this is a pretty difficult choice as there's still like a lot of stigma around the idea of single motherhood. Um, and then to make matters worse, she lives in a really tough family situation with her parents. Her father is not a nice person, very emotionally and physically abusive. So that adds even more complication to her decisions. But she's a really interesting character um, throughout the book. We get these glimpses into this inner strength that she has, and she has a very independent way of doing things that from the outside might 
not always seem like she's making, you know, the easiest decisions, but she just has this inner strength that continues to, you know, whether it's choosing to have the baby or even once she has the baby, she decides that she's going to work, even though at that time, you know, that was kind of a different choice. So there's a passage, I think, that talks a little bit about her and her way of kind of subverting expectations and finding this inner strength that I keep talking about. It says, Takiku knew nothing of all... Takiku knew nothing at all about the hospital in which she was staying. This is when she's having the baby. Yet as she inspected the aging white plaster studded with Western-style decorations, she could almost see the women who must have lain under the same ceiling decades ago. Hundreds, no, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of women had lain here, staring up at the ceiling, and one of them was her. Takiko felt a sense of sufficiency she'd never known before, a contentment that took her by surprise. So I really like that passage because it's talking about both touching on the tradition and the thousands or tens of thousands of women who've gone through these experiences before. But then at the end, you get that spark of, you expect maybe that she'll think she's part of this greater tradition or something, but no, she has her own spin on it. And she feels this contentment that you might not expect of somebody in her situation at that time. So I really like that. Um, and then the writing with, within it, she also tends to find a lot of solace and inspiration in nature, as you can probably tell from the, the title of the novel. Um, there's just this one real brief section at the beginning of a chapter that I thought, you know, me and my nature writing love. Um, it says, this is again when she's in the hospital looking out the window. And it says, from the window of the ward, a single large tree could be seen, a poplar. Early every afternoon, the tree began to shine. A glittering white light danced and scattered as its leaves stirred in the wind. The view bordered by the square window frame gave a deceptive impression of nearness, like a mirage. In the evening, the tree would bask in the setting sun, reaching the height of its brilliance. The fine midsummer days seemed to be continuing. So I really liked that too. And, and that, that's mm -hmm. kind of first. She's, got, she's going through these tough situations, but she reaches inside herself, but then she also draws from her surroundings. Um, a very reserved style that I really liked. Um, Lauren Groff wrote the introduction for the NYRB Classics, and I really like what she says. She says, this book has a grandeur to it, a constant flickering outward to the wider world, because Takiko, our profoundly unheroic heroine, resolutely holds the space inside herself to dream, to take pleasure in her body, to fall in love, to discover a green place called Misawa Gardens, and pursue a job there surrounded by calm and beauty. It is with great wonder that the reader beholds her, this uneducated and ordinary young woman, who, though exhausted and at her highest pitch of despair, retreats to the cool mountains of her imagination, seeing herself as a girl running. So, you know, as always, Lauren Groff can put things far better than I ever could, but just such a beautiful book. Another one of those sneaky books that I really liked at the time, but it just continues. There's certain scenes in there that I just find myself thinking about very often and just a very wonderful, fascinating, strong female character that is just so easy to admire and also, you know, just to follow along on this, this really tough path that she's going on and just kind of, it's amazing, really well done. So I'll admit that I sometimes feel like Japanese literature is one of those blank spots for me that I have not read enough of. And there have been some books that I haven't necessarily connected to, but I'm happy to say that this book um, really changed that. And so I'm looking forward to reading not only more of her work, but also continuing to kind of, you know, seek out more Japanese literature and find some good connections. So I know that she has another book territory of light that gets a lot of really mm -hmm. high praise so that one might be one of the books that's next on my radar for the you know the foreseeable future here so anyway woman running in the mountains excellent 
Excellent. I, I admit to missing the bus on that one. Um, I was I grabbed it out when One Bright Book was going to be reading it. And then it, you know, zoom, time blew by and the bus yep. went by and you guys were all on it having a great time. And that... <laughs> Oh, well, it'll, oh still well. Be there. it'll still be there waiting for you. You sound so sympathetic. Oh, well. <laughs> no, we would have loved to have you. But all I mean is that uh, the, their episode will still be there waiting for you. And oh, for book, sure. For yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's really good. It, it really is. It's um, like I said, it's one of those that I just keep finding. I keep saying this, but. I'm really fascinated by those books that just find their way into somewhere in your consciousness and, and just won't let you go. Well, let's see if I can bring bring that back a little bit for you, Paul. My number okay. six is one that I, I read because, you know, other things going on with our year. You know, we did a, an episode about archipelago books, and then we did a, a, a talk with Tess Lewis um, about archipelago books. And... Uh, you brought up The Birds by Tarie Vasis. And man, talk about a book that is just feels like living your day-to-day in a way, you know, the the, the passage of time. Um, Don, you know, he set, does such a great job describing what it feels like to be at any given hour of the day almost. And it's all from the perspective of a mentally handicapped um, man named Matisse, who is 37 years old. Matisse lives with his sister, Haga, who is 40. And man, I don't know. I don't even know exactly where to go with, with this one other than it's beautifully written, uh, very powerful, very tender. And I, you know, just didn't, didn't know exactly uh, what to, to, to think about as, as going Mm -hmm. through it. I mean, here's, here's someone who, simple things mean so much. It's so powerful, you know, including uh, as you read, I think you read the passage in our episode on Archipelago when the woodcock um, is flying over his house. Mm -hmm. That is a cosmic event Mm -hmm. and maybe it is. And the rest of us are missing it, but he treats it as such and is very excited to, to let everybody know. And it's a lot about his interactions with his sister and with other members of the community. Uh, and the thing that I loved about it too is it, it would be easy to think that Vesas is going to have people be needlessly cruel to Matisse. Mm-hmm. And there is cruelty, but it's actually often more just because of the disconnect. Um, I like that he had people really trying to understand. His sister, you know, can be abrupt and a little bit angry at times, but she's tired, you know, and, and she does try at times as well to be excited about the the woodcock flying over the house, Mm -hmm. for example. And there are other people in the community who are, are kind. Um, Even the horrific part where a hunter comes, the hunter doesn't, has his own thoughts about what's important. You know, it's a young man who's excited to to shoot the woodcock. And Matisse, of course, won't have any of this. And the hunter is at first like, what, are you serious? Like, you're serious here? And then is like, oh, okay, you know, I, I don't understand what's going on here. And it doesn't turn into what I was kind of expecting, uh, a session of beratement and uh, of cruelty in those forms. He just kind of leaves. 
because he doesn't get what's going on. There's so much in this book about the the worlds that these characters are inhabiting that are very lonely from each other and the very you know the inability i would say not just the difficulty but the inability to bridge those gaps mm. and man i really really enjoyed <laughs> enjoyed this book and just uh yeah i i've actually been rereading it um in preparation for the episode and uh, honestly loving it even more the second time around now that I kind of have a feel for what's going on and know these characters it's easier to to feel oriented even at the beginning of the book again and again I'll just refer to a great video uh, Chris Villa on his mm-hmm. Leaf by Leaf has a really good video on uh, the birds that yeah, I would strongly recommend well uh, I'm not going to say much more about this because this may just come up again <laughs> in a future. Oh, yeah. Oh. I'm going to leave it and we can have some more conversation in the future. I'll just leave it. Sounds that. good. Sounds yeah. How's good. that for I, a, I have a mild no idea. spoiler? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm absolutely thrilled that it made it on your list. I, oh, this book, I love it. Oh, so I, I actually didn't know. I, I must I mean, I'll just talk around this. I didn't know you'd read this book this year. You know, when I was looking through my list, it was one of those that I was talking about where I couldn't believe I read it this year either, because I feel like it's one of those that I have been thinking about so often and so much that I would have guessed it. I'd read it a year or two ago. Yeah. It feels like I looked back too. Yeah. I read it, uh, or at least I finished it. It looks like in early January. So, I mean, it was probably, it might've even been like late last year and into this year after our previous episode you know our previous year end episode totally counts yeah that's what i figured but yeah no i was actually when i was talking about the passage of time and how weird it is that was one of the the poster children for what i was talking about because i was like wait that was this year because it really has (laughs) you know just resonated with me so yeah i will save most of of my talks sounds good for the future but i'm very 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 thrilled that it's on your list Oh, honestly, it probably could be higher. I have a lot of good books to talk about next time, but this one was tough to put at number six and Mm -hmm. probably another time I'd put it number one even, but yeah, you know, looking forward to, to seeing where, where it might end up (laughs) in our conversation next week. Uh, but also just to, uh, get around and and do this again with our top five favorites, but uh, listeners, again, we would love to hear from you. We've, we've got several uh, of you have sent us, you know, what, what your favorite book of the year has been. Uh, we want to hear more. So please, please let us know. But we'll put a pin in this for now and be back soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time. <laughs>